Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey everybody and welcome to the Cinefix Top 100, our battlefield between good and evil where the power of Christ compels us to watch 100 of the greatest movies of all time. I'm Clint Gage and joining me as always, Cinefix's Chief of Head Spinning Technologies, Alex Stedman. Alex, how you doing? I was actually going to say that I'm ready for a head spinning episode, so you're way ahead of me. Can't wait, can't wait. And uh, we also have our pea soup enthusiast, Michael Calibro. Cal, How's it what's going? up? How's it going? It's going, man. Um, so as as usual, here we are, possessed by Dan's algorithm um, that is working in conflict with our own personal beliefs, which really I was thinking about it. And I feel like this movie is the most thematically relevant movie that we've covered so far where our relationship with Dan's algorithm is concerned, because like we searched our souls and our faith in our own sort of cinephileness to come up with our top 100 lists and then Dan's science came and charging in at it and where in the twain do they meet uh and then now that Dan's algorithm has just smushed it all together into one Dan is the demon Dan is the devil I was gonna say is is Dan Pazuzu and we're all Marin Uh, it burns oh it burns Dan, I feel like, yeah, it's, there's a uh, producer. Dan has a has an ancient statue of himself in the desert. I think somewhere is what I, I'm assuming at this point. Um, but all that rambling nonsense to say, we're talking about The Exorcist this week, and I personally love this movie. I'm with you. I this is up there for me. I'm one of the people. I, I carry on the long tradition of having seen this movie way too young and. I can count on one hand the uh, the movies that genuinely scared the crap out of me, and The Exorcist is absolutely one of them. So I'm a contrarian here. I think this is a good movie, oh. but I, I am in no way in love with this movie. As a matter of fact, like I am a bigger proponent of, of uh, The Omen. I think The Omen is the better possession movie. I'm a big fan of that franchise, and I, just, I, I, I don't know. I just... I only I only came to this movie when I was a teenager and something about a disobedient child cursing in front of doctors never particularly scared me. I just thought that was like hilarious. You know? I don't think and that's like, the scary part. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not that's not where the, the scary factor of this movie I lives mean, and dies. I, think. I, I don't know, man. But like when I like when, when she's like just like, you know, stabbing herself with the crucifix and cursing like children cursing is just hilarious. And there I've. You you know you can you can you can have as many doors slam shut as you want. You could chill the set down to negative twenty. You can like rock furniture, but like as long as there's like a little child cursing and an adult voice, I'm gonna laugh my ass off. You're you're checked right out as soon as that little kid with the I mean, growly I, voice. You you can't I mean, take it seriously. I'm engaged, but I can't take it. I I, I I just I can't do it. Like the thing about the old like the thing about the exorcist that's like good is just like you know like reagan gets possessed and then it's up to like her mother to go to the scientific community to try and 
like get help to find out what's wrong with her daughter but everybody realizes that something's fucked up with reagan and like they're all working in ironically good faith to save her right before they have to turn to the priest like that is cool and i definitely understand how that was like scary and weird in like 1973 but like the thing about the omen that in my opinion what makes the omen real scary is that like all of gregory peck's allies die or like mysteriously like like final destination get killed and that movie culminates with like gregory peck like basically the authorities like society barging into the church right about as gregory peck is trying to murder the spawn of satan and yet to them he is the bad guy cal did you get the omen on the list now now i'm curious like is it on your your list instead the the, the omen is on my list but i like that like that is the exorcism movie that that is like the demon movie that i always i always gravitate to and i I was gonna say it's not technically a possession movie yeah the, the kid is actually the devil in that movie but yeah. we, if if it is on your list i bet we'll, we'll you know maybe I mean, next listen, halloween we're, we're, by, we're, by the way we're, happy we're, halloween guys oh yeah, oh yeah happy halloween um, next maybe next year we can convince dan we can do a not top 100 on the omen and have this conversation this exact conversation we already have the footage we already I'm got gonna, it. i'm gonna it's actually i'm gonna actually just go shoot it myself before dan shoots me <laughs> i know well, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna see if i can steer us back towards the exorcist before we get too far down that road but amen ah! Defender of the human race. So, The Exorcist, 1973, directed by William Friedkin, um, who I think has made some of my sneaky favorite movies. Friedkin is a guy that I, I feel like I feel like his movies. When I see them, I'm like, oh wow, that was so much better than I expected it to be. Um, written by William Peter Blatter, who who wrote the novel. Also, uh, the novel was a, an enormous hit back in the day. Um, but then starring Ellen Burstyn, Jason Miller, Linda Blair, I, I think the biggest name that's actually in this movie at the time would have been Max von Sydow, yeah, but sure. he, I, but even that was like kind of in the artsy, you know, the, he was, he was Ingmar Bergman's guy back, back then. Um, and, and so it's a relatively unknown cast in what was also a relatively big budget movie for the, for the day. I think Warner brothers had a lot of, of faith ironically in, in this after the, the book was such a, a bestseller, but um, but the book was such a big hit that Blatty actually got to be a producer on the movie. He also which like is a fascinating thing that does not happen anymore. He also like went on to direct some of the sequels, right? Like he did. He did. Uh, yeah, the the third one. Yeah. I know at least. So yeah, and but you're um, you're not wrong about them having a lot of faith in it. Ironically, but it, I don't think it started as expensive as it ended up. I mean, they just kept. <laughs> Like having to reshoot did, things yeah. and people kept getting injured, which I'm sure, sure we'll get into. But yeah, it did not start that way. Yeah, it, it was a long process um, and then potentially cursed. If we can tease another thing that we'll end up talking about later. I feel like we've teased all of the things at this point. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of the cast, though, like it was it was made up of, of someone. Ellen Burson had but she'd been in TV. She was in the last picture show. That was the other big thing that she had done to that point. Uh, Linda Blair, obviously, they, this was her first the thing. They found her, um, you know, they auditioned. It was one of those like, well, we auditioned 700 kids or something like that. Um, and then Jason Miller was he was a playwright. And hey. your favorite guy, Cal. Go ahead. Listen, he's 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 a hometown hero, man. Like he's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. He's probably like the most famous actor we've got 
They call it Scranton. What? The Electric City. Scranton. What? The Electric City. You know, before before the office put put Scranton on the map, like every single person that you know in Scranton is like a seeing the Exorcist and you'd be like, "Do you know the priest is from Scranton?" <laughs> <laughs> you just grew up with people constantly like, "Did you hear the priest is from Scranton?" Do you know you know you know the priest from yeah. the Exorcist? Is from you know that guy. <laughs> He's Which Oscar one, the actual priest. Yeah. 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 But anyway, I mean, let's just get into the pedigree yeah. of this. You, you mentioned already, we, we mentioned that uh, uh, Jason Miller was nominated for an Academy Award. Got nominated for 10 Best Picture Director, Actress, Supporting Actress, Supporting Actress, Art Direction, Cinematography, Editing. Those were all nominations. And then it got wins for uh, Best Sound. Uh, and Blatty got one for the Best Screenplay. Um, he, so he, he two, took home the trophy two for win, that? But the movie, when it, when it hit, it, it was a hit. Like, it was kind of a kind of a phenomenon. Like everybody, everything that I that I read about this and saw in some of the behind the scenes, like Warner Brothers knew it was good. And then when it came out and people were like passing out in the theater and stuff, they were like, oh, oh, OK. And then it, it, it blew up from there. Yeah, this is like one of the first blockbusters, right? Like this is like one of those movies where you just see people lined up down the block waiting to see this thing. Yeah, yeah it's one of those movies where I wish I could just go back in time just so I could experience the actual zeitgeist around it right. because read like I, I didn't believe it at first but yeah the people passing out the people camping out like it's insane and the Oscars yeah. not insignificant because the Oscars were not given out nominations to genre fair um, and honestly I feel like they've kind of gone back on that in the years since but yeah it was it was a big deal yeah they're sort of sort of overcorrecting on on some of it but like, they have it's the but this, yeah, this one to be to be a horror film that gets nominated for for all of these, much less Best Picture. Like uh, that's that was something else in the seventies. Although so. uh, what I did reading something that Blatty kind of like gave this went on this big tirade about how it didn't win enough, even though Blatty himself had won. He was like, well, and I like, like kind of agree with him. I don't I don't know what won Best Picture that year, but I can't imagine we talk about it more than The Exorcist. Well, somebody somebody looked that up while I talk about William Friedkin again. I feel for like we always, um, yeah, because he was he was coming off of winning an Academy Award for The French Connection. That was that was what he had he had previously done, and that was the movie that Blatty saw that got him this gig. Like he was Blatty's choice, and they wanted you know the studio was talking about you know Kubrick and like much bigger names. Um, to to direct this movie, but Blatty was like, nope, I saw French Connection and. Uh, uh, Friedkin's my guy, um, but this window right here for Friedkin between French Connection, the The Exorcist, and Sorcerer, like that's that's a three movie run that you can you can stack up there against a lot of people's three movies run. Like that's that's a good stretch. Man, the oh 70s, by the way, The Sting won Best Picture. Yeah, year. I was just gonna I was just gonna say the seventies were so Eight fucking years. cool. Like The Sting beat The Sting beat The Exorcist for Best Picture, and. And Linda Blair lost to Tana O'Neill in Paper Moon, which is also like a incredible. Oh, wow. Like which little kid yeah. is going to yeah. win this year? Yeah. That's crazy. It's a wild year. Yeah. yeah. No, but you're, you're not wrong, Clint. The French Connection with like, but the thing that I find pretty interesting is that Blatty went to Friedkin because he was a documentary maker. Yeah. And a lot of The Exorcist comes across like, as a documentary, which is what I, what I think makes so, is so scary about it. It kind of looks like you're just watching like some detective's account of this terrible like mm -hmm. possession. Well, and that's what, that's what Blatty's approach was for the book too. Like he, he talked to, there was a priest that gave him homework 
when he was doing research on the book and like he goes he goes farther out of his way to kind of in, in the book anyway to to like there's a potential that it is fake like that it is not happening and then things like which is a thing that the movie never even thinks about doing the movie's like nope this is real um but for a movie that the like the most iconic shot of the movie is is a little girl's head spinning 360 degrees mm-hmm. around like it's like oh no this is a really grounded approach <laughs> to, to the film, which is incredible and and that's there are several moments in here and, and several things that i think are, are treated with such such weight and such realism that uh yeah that's that's why this is so scary like and i think it will probably end up having shades of that conversation this whole time about like well what's so scary about this you know because cal's cal's an omen guy um and then this is this is a very different movie in a lot of ways so it is also um there's a lot of really smart and like we'll get into it like technical aspects of this like things that are so easy to solve for now that they had to just like invent on the spot then that it's just like a lot of ingenuity went into like the practical effects of this thing it's and and that's that too i think and then those are the the moments where where i kind of flagged the idea is like and this is why this movie is scary because like the the way that you know uh having her float above the bed like you do that you know we can i I could do that in premiere you know easy enough but then at at the time in the early 70s it's like we got to figure out how to do this and then audiences have to be like like it's a real thing that's really happening on screen and like it it's spookier that way it just is like you don't see the seams and you don't see the strings and you you can't just sit there and be like oh yeah that's cgi um so like there's so much of that stuff, so much of that effort that went into the technical side of this movie, I think is is part of it looking real and it being scarier. So. And hold, and standing the test of time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a good version of practical effects instead of a cheap version or a bad version, early version of CGI, yep. you know. That the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. Part of the story of this movie for me is all the different versions, right? From the book to the theatrical cut, even to and then to the director's cut. Like, I found I found one behind the scenes thing where where Friedkin was telling a story about there's a guy, uh, uh, this old impressionist painter guy named Pierre Bernard. This is like a legend apparently who had he before he was he was dead. He had works hanging in the Louvre. And he got arrested one time at the Louvre for standing there with the paintbrush, like tweaking his painting. And the security guards were like, what are you doing? It's already in the Louvre. Like, why are you still trying to mess with this painting? Uh, which is kind of the dynamic that he and Blatty had over the years with like debating about what they should do with this movie and like how they should how they should tweak it and who's who's reading it and which ways and how are they wrong? Like Blatty thinks that every, everybody's just wrong. He's like, I keep trying to explain what this movie's about, and nobody's like, No, I think it's about this. And I'm like, Oof. Well, I. So it's it's funny that over I over mean, the years, the a, two of them had so many different different views on what sh- what should go into the movie and how it should should read. It's just hilarious. Well, I remember reading or watching an interview where Friedkin called Blatty a sore winner or something because basically, mm-hmm. like, it was insane how how incredibly successful the movie was. It was financially successful. It got Oscars and all that stuff. And yet 
Vladdy was so mad. And the two didn't talk until, I, I think Friedkin said until 2000 when they released the director. It was years. Yeah. yeah. They didn't speak for Decades. years, apparently, yeah. which is incredible. Yeah. But they made like an objectively um, successful movie. It's just so crazy. Yeah. So there's the theatrical version and the director's version. Do you guys have a preference? The theatrical I version. I go yeah. back and forth. What's weird is, is like the director's cut is is oddly more of the writer's cut from what it seems like. Like the stuff that Blatty was mad that that Freed can cut out in the in the the theatrical version. Like all that stuff went in. There's interviews with Freakin being like, I just respect him so much. I wanted to put that stuff back in. Which is yeah, right. and they were wrong. I mean, like it fundamentally changes the end of that movie, and I think the end of the theatrical cut ending is a way more profound and like emotionally felt ending versus the versus the uh, the director's cut. And like that first scene that they put in when like she like they changed the first scene, which in which Reagan starts to show symptom symptoms, and you know it's a chuckle fest for me, but I think it like it doesn't. <laughs> adhere to the horror and like the mystery that they were going for that is more successfully reached in the theatrical cut. I, I like certain things in the uh, director's cut and I like certain things that they cut out. I leave, I, I'm somewhere in between. Like I wanted, I think the spider walk should be in there and I'm sure we'll talk about the spider walk, but the alternate ending just kind of is so odd to me. Um, I do like the scene where Marin and Karis are in the stairway, I think like mid exorcism and they're kind of just like explaining the point of the movie, uh, which Friedkin thought was a little, yeah. I think on the nose, but I don't know, like, I, and I like seeing more Marin. We don't get a lot of Marin. I think he's a really cool character. Yeah, well, let's let's get into brilliant moments so we can start talking about these things uh, a little more specifically. So what um, what do we want to talk about first? Cal, do you want to you want to dive straight into your your little kid profanity? Scene. Yeah, I mean that 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 first scene where it's just like. So this is we're talking about the scene here where where uh, they bring she brings Reagan into the doctor's office and they're doing all just the basic exams. Yeah, it's just like the uh, on the knee stuff and like you know just the yeah. the typical stuff. But then it's just like also just like a very funny line where it's just like they're in the doctor's office after and he's like. You know, your daughter has quite the vocabulary. And then it's just like, well, what did, what did she say? And he's just like, I don't feel comfortable saying. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's just. I shouldn't say it in front of a lady. Yeah. It's but. just, it's just, I don't know. I just think that stuff is just so wonky. And like, it, it just really changed. It changes the dynamic. It changes the dynamic of the movie. And like, I, I also like empathize with this. Like when I was a child there, I got stung by a bee and I had an allergic reaction. And then like the doctor had to give me a shot. And I told him that if, if, if he was going to give me that shot, I would kick him in the nuts. So then like, I just like very much empathize with this little girl here. And also I just don't inherently see her as possessed because I hated doctors too as a child. And it's just like, did you kick him in the nuts though? No, but I, my mom, had, oh, okay. my mom had that very same conversation with the doctor where she was or, like, like where did you where did you hear the phrase kick him in the nuts? <laughs> just like my cousin yeah. said it. You tell me which one of your friends said that. Yeah. Yeah. No, just... it, it there is there's that moment in towards the end of that scene where he finally says what Reagan said to him and yeah. uh you know, Chris is like 
Like, just <laughs> I a, love no weird, weird little Ellen Burstyn giggle. Like, oh, that is kind of funny. Um, you know, and, but the, it's it's those moments of I guess I guess before this was in here, like we just see her, we just see Reagan exhibiting the symptoms, and and then we we move straight on to what's next. Like we don't have to talk. We, there, this is basically a scene where we just saw a thing happen. Yeah, there it is. We just saw a thing happen, and then now there's two people talking about the thing that just happened. Yeah, which is like there's no there's no type of scene that needs to be in a movie less, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, mean, I actually just, agree with it, you guys. I I don't think we need this scene at all. The only thing I really like is Ellen Burstyn's little giggle. It's very humanizing. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it, I mean, I guess the to in in its defense, it does sort of, um, you know, it does it eases her transition into like really taking it seriously like there's still room for her to be like i know she's going to be fine but you know we're, we'll figure this out uh like it, it's that level of or that stage of trying to figure out what the hell's going on that that she's in right now that's it's not urgent yet you know um it's kind of to what like you know kind of Blatty's original it's kind of like the novel where he built up more of the scientific aspect of it and the, you know, kind of like you were saying, it's this actually couldn't like, maybe this isn't real. Um, it's kind of a holdover of that. I feel it without this scene, we get to the party scene, which I know you're a fan of Alex. And like, we're going to talk about, like we get to that scene faster. And I just think that that it does the same thing, but it just punches harder. And I don't necessarily think we needed to get eased into that moment a little more. Well, and again, too, there's the difference of approach between between Blatty and Friedkin, which I think is the story of this whole this whole movie. Um, you know, there's the idea that like we want to let we want to let people discover things for their for themselves, and we want to let people sort of apply whatever meaning that they bring into like this whole movie is a Rorschach test as far as uh, Friedkin is concerned. But then Blatty wants to be like, no, but I mean, tell you, there's a it's kind of a happy ending. Like there's room for a happy ending here, guys. And Friedkin's like, I don't give a shit about that. Like <laughs> people can believe whatever they want to believe about it. Um, uh, which I, I think is, you know, better myself. There are but, two different approaches. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're two very different approaches and, and you can see it in the theatrical cut versus the 2000 cut. Like they're, they're, uh, it's, what, 11 minutes difference? Yeah, like Something 11 or like 12, and it, but it's very different. It's 11 not or like 12 a, minutes yeah. across across three or four scenes is all all it really is. Like there's this scene, this conversation is a couple minutes long. There's, you know, a little bit more up front in, in Iraq um, and then a little bit more on the end, a couple things mixed in. There's not a ton of, of stuff happening in, in those 11 minutes, but it, it's a big change. It's a noticeable change. Is. I I did also see where they they were they were going to put more in, but they had like a bunch of work prints that they couldn't find the negatives for, and there was like I think the director's cut could have ultimately been pretty pretty bad, <laughs> based on like the director's cut is I mean we can have a preference for the theatrical cut or whatever uh, if we want to, but like the I think there was a there was a an actual shot that the director's cut was going to be legitimately bad if they put all of this stuff back in, but they just couldn't find the sound for it or they couldn't find the original. And it was stuff like them wandering around DC, like sightseeing and talking about. Oh death yeah. That scene like is that. so, so unnecessary. Yeah. 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 Again, so, I wish I could Frankenstein anyway. my own director's cut where I just take out like the DC scenes and even this scene and just put in yeah. the spider walk and the, and Marin and Karis on the stairwell. And that would be my perfect director's cut. 
So we've talked about spider walk a, a couple of times. Let's yeah. let's dig into that just a little bit more because the the big reason. So this is a scene she just finds out that uh, that her director is is dead, had died in, in, in an accident. Um, and the guy that tells her as soon as he leaves, she turns around and here comes Reagan, just spider walking down the stairs. And this was uh, they could see the wires. Yeah. Back in the day. And that was the big reason why they cut this. This this wasn't cut for any ideological reasons, as far as I can tell. Like, this was just a technical, like, nah, we can see the scene. We can see the the wires. Um, and, and so it didn't make the theatrical cut. But, like, you know, 25 years later, it's easy to scrub those out. And now this is, to me, this is the scariest shot in the whole movie. I Easily. love this shot. Easily. Ugh. Like I, yeah. I, I, my original viewing of The Exorcist is really fuzzy because I was really young. But I feel like I originally saw the theatrical cut and didn't see the spider walk scene because when I rewatched it a few years later, the spider walk scene was in there, and I just it it just caught me so off guard, and I I think I like literally screamed. It is so, and I I think I read somewhere that in addition to the wire issue that I think Blatty thought it was like too much, too soon. They like sped, it was too. They sped it up too. Yeah. 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 There were there were a couple of different things that they tried to make it work, I think. Because it also there was an extended version of it where she's like has this really long tongue and she's like lizard kind of girl chasing yeah. her mom around a little bit, which is very which was very hokey and weird. The the blood coming out of her mouth thing was like an alternate version that they they ended up cobbling the two shots together, I think, is what it seems like. But uh, but they made it work for the director's cut. And to, I mean, it's it's such a it's such a scary unnatural thing to look at you know and i think at this point there was there was some discussion i i feel like i saw in one of the behind the scenes interviews by the way i spent all day listening to to blatty and friedkin talk to each other (laughs) there are some fascinating behind the scenes commentaries where they're just kind of like chatting you Um, could you could look into the behind the scenes at this movie forever and i feel like you still wouldn't get it all like there's just so much behind the scenes stuff for this damn movie yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there was a conversation about like you know the emotional sort of it's it's sort of like a couple of different climaxes in a row because you like you find out somebody's dead and you're like all of these other things that are happening at this point in the movie to then just layer this other thing on top of it um, just felt like too much. Yeah. yeah, and I I I get that. Like I think just the fear factor of it and you're not ready for it. It completely catches you off guard. The next thing you know, like it's, it's still pretty grounded up to this point. And then the next thing you know, there's a 13 year old crawling backwards on a, on a flight of stairs. It's the scariest yeah. thing. The other thing that I do love about the way it's cut is it, it you know, we're screaming and there's blood coming out of her mouth and, and, and then it cuts straight to black. Yeah. Oh and yeah. It stays in, in, it cuts straight to black and it stays there. Um, for longer than, than you think. And I, and there's a, they do that a handful of times in the movie where something awful is happening and then it gets cut short into the next scene. And to me that like, that really feels like a, um, just, Oh my God, Oh my God. And then cut to black. To me, that really feels like, um, like he's making you stew in it a little bit, you know, like he presents you with these scary images 
And then we hard cut away from before we have time to process what we're seeing and we have to move on with the rest of our life. And so like to me, like that, that's an edit technique that puts us more in the shoes of, of what it's like for, you know, uh, Alan Burstyn to be living through this or not uh, Alan Burstyn's character uh, to be living through something like this. And um, and just not knowing what's next, not knowing what's coming, but having that image of what just happened fresh in your mind is such a scary way to be for two hours. And mm. it's, it's edits like this that really, that really drive that home. Yeah, and I, I, I think especially where it comes in in the movie, um, like you said, she just found out her director is dead. And I, I go back to that deleted scene that I really like where Marin's es essentially telling you the point of the movie and he's, he's saying something like, you know, the target isn't, like, because Karis is like, why this girl? And Marin is like, it's not, Reagan is not the target. It's everyone in this house. Yeah, it's not the girl. It's, yeah. it's everyone else's. And, God, you just feel the weight from Ellen Burstyn. Like, she's already freaking out. And because, again, of this, like, kind of almost documentary style, it's really easy to empathize with her. And then, yeah, you just see her poor 13-year-old daughter coming down the stairs. Like, it's, it's just, at that point, you just want to cry for her. Yeah, it's tough. The only thing I don't um, love is that the body double doesn't look terribly like Linda Blair, but that is, that is a nitpick. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. What else? We skipped over the, the beginning, uh, the opening, opening the movie in, in Iraq with, with Father Marin on an archaeological dig. Which I think the only difference there is the director's cut opens with like this really kind of sleepy shot of the house before we cut away to, mm. to Iraq. I think you're right. Um, I have, I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on this opening scene because I can never figure out if I like it or not. I think where I land on it is that I think I like what it's trying to do, which is kind of set up this existential spiritual battle between Pazuzu, which by the way, hilarious demon name, and Marin. And, but it's just, it's way too long. Like, they should just cut it a little bit. It takes up way too much of the opening of the movie. I agree. I mean, it's fun, though. I, I, I don't think it needs to be that long. Like, I just wish they did, like, the opening credits over it, right? Like, is it, like if it did double duty and you just, like, had, like, the casting and all that as he's just kind of, like, roaming around the streets of, uh, of Iraq and, like, he finds – and then he just, like, finds the uh, medallion and then it's just, like, the exorcist. And then it goes into that weird, like – double exposure shot of him and, and the statue of what I assume is Pazuzu. I do really love the sound design of this oh. opening. 
part though. Like, and I, I think that's, that's sort of the double duty that it's doing is kind of establishing some of these, these more sort of ancient type of sounds that we're going to be exposed to later, you know, and like the way that the hammering on the anvil is like the pace of the thing is cut to match that. And, you know, cutting from, you know, a guy, I think is a guy's like a carpenter is working and then match cutting that to a clock ticking. And all, all of those little things are so, um, so meticulous and, and they make the scene so interesting. I think that like, I, I could live in that scene for a little bit longer, to be honest. It, the weird thing is though, that it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not Father Marin's movie, but we spend the first, what, 10 minutes of the movie with Father Marin and it's, and, and then we go on something else. So it's, 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 it is strange in that regard. Um, but I do, I like, I like the way that sequence is put together so much that I don't mind it at all. It also does have some of the, I would say some of the best shots of the movie. Cause you have that one where I think it's, it's like a church and like the red sky behind it. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. no, but that's a good point about you see father Marin in the beginning and then you basically never see him. I don't, that's another thing that I go back and forth about. I I'm like, do I like father Marin as kind of this unseen, like, I don't know, spiritual hero who is like their secret weapon against fighting Pazuzu. Um, or do I wish we saw more of him? I, I, I really don't know. It is, but it's, it's a weird structure. There's, there's a lot of weird structural choices in this movie. There's the idea that it sets up some type of eternal kind of struggle. Um, that, you know, that that's what the movie's about more so than it is about any one person or any one character or anything like that. Or, you know, it would be weird if we didn't meet him. And then all of a sudden they're like, let's bring in the old guy. Um, and then he just kind of shows up. Nah, it's like, a, I could see that. I could see that being the case now if it was made nah, right now. It's a, it's a, it's a good vibe scene to your point, right? Like it yeah. just, it has, it has, it has a cool vibe to it. It sets up the vibe and it like establishes even like more or less silently the credibility of a character that's going to have a profound impact on the plot in act three. Yep. You know, so it's not like, it's not like this like priest just comes out of nowhere. It's like, we got to go get, we got to go get the priest. And then it's just like some yeah. person you didn't meet from the first time. Like, yeah, I do like the idea that like, this is the scene where we meet the vibes. <laughs> um, things are bad. Dude, <laughs> vibe, things vibe, are bad. Vibe scenes are great. Vibe scenes are awesome. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, can we also really quickly talk about, uh, and this is kind of segue into some makeup discussion that I think we can have, but uh, Max von Sydow was like 40. Yeah, young man. Like when they were, he was, he was not an old guy. Um, and Dick Smith, the guy that did the, um, the makeup on this movie, he had just done Brando's makeup on The Godfather. He would go on to do Salieri, old Salieri's makeup. Um, but and, and, Dick and, Smith was and, and at, the at this point. He was. What's that? He went to go on, go on to do Salieri's makeup in The Better Oppenheimer. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah Amadeus, famously known as the better version <laughs> That's of what Oppenheimer. Everyone calls it. <laughs> Everyone's always been calling it that since the eighties, um, <laughs> but the, uh, uh, but he was kind of a legend at this point uh, already. Like he, you know, he was one of those guys that he was kind of one of the reasons why they finally made an Academy Award for for hair and makeup. But the um, I got to go to over the summer when I was in LA, I got to go to a screening at the Academy Museum Theater, which is me totally name dropping an experience, I guess. 
whatever the word for that is. But the um, Rick Baker actually did the the intro. He introduced the movie because this was actually Rick Baker's first uh, kind of big budget job. Like he'd worked a little bit and he was, uh, but he was uncredited on this movie. And he told an incredible story about. Uh, First of all, like how he met Dick Smith is he was just a fan of his and he like wrote letters back and forth to and finally and Dick Smith needed help on this movie. And he was like, hey, you want to come out and work with me? And they like worked with his basement, worked with him in, in his basement on on The Exorcist. And that was like one of his first big breaks. But um, they put the they went through a lot of work to get the makeup right on Reagan. And then when they brought her on set, this is a story that Rick Baker told. When they brought her on set, he heard some grip say something like, oh, look, she's got her demon mask on. And Friedkin overheard him saying that and was like, oh, well, start over. Like, it's too masky. You got to start over. And so he had to go back to the drawing board and, like, redo Reagan's look as the demon, like, from scratch. And, like, Rick Baker said, it's, it's so funny listening to Rick Baker tell this story about one of his idols. And he was so mad at Friedkin and Blatty both. He's like, what the fuck do you, who do you think you are talking to Dick Smith like this? And of course, by the end, like they got it all right. And he was like, you know, and that, that was my lesson was like, sometimes directors know what they're talking about. Um, but, uh, but anyway, all that to say the makeup, including Max von Sydow's, you know, old man makeup is, is really incredible. And the, the practical effects on this movie I think again for like the early seventies, it's it's such an era of like ingenuity, like you just you just had to figure stuff out on your own. Like there weren't any shortcuts to to do it right, um, you know, from the makeup all the way to you know beds floating and you know and if you wardrobes flying across the room. And if you couldn't do it in camera, you didn't do it at all. Yeah, you figure out something else. Yeah. And then you release Which the spider walk scene twenty five years later. And it becomes one of the most. Later, yeah. Yeah. You, you take you take a swing and you blow it and you don't put it in the movie until you you know the technology shows back up. But um, but I do really like. I mean, it's it's one of those. It, this is the era of like the old tricks are the best tricks. You know, like the they built the stage up off the ground and they just had pulley systems underneath the floor that was like pulling stuff all over and they were you know shooting stuff across the room with just a big fan and they just kind of constructed a, the number of, of in all these behind the scenes things, the number of times somebody said like, yeah, and then the grips just figured it out. Well, I it's love like, it. Uh, yeah. Grips are the smartest people on the planet. I love grips so much. And like you look at like the behind the scenes footage of like the bed shaking, for example, and it's just a bunch of dudes working their asses off. Like they're just like, like shaking it up and down. It's like yeah. it, blood, sweat and tears. And, and it, it wasn't easy for the actors, too. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but like the room being that cold because they couldn't generate computer generate uh, um, frost breath. Like, yeah, well, let's let's talk about that, because that's that's kind of my uh, my bump in the lamp for this for this movie, I think, is how cold they made that room. Um, so the, it was all born out of I want to see their breath. Yeah. Right. Like Friedkin wanted to see all the characters breath and to do that like you need it to be cold obviously but you also need moisture in the air and the air conditioner was also sort of dehumidifying the room so they had to go even colder to like i mean some people were talking about like it was negative 20 or negative 30 degrees in that room when they would walk in and they were all in these like arctic suits and poor linda blair was just like in her pajamas the whole time um 
But they, they made it literally, it was, it was below freezing yeah. in that room. And they could only do a couple of takes before it got too hot. And it's just like, you know, that's yep. just, it's th that scene just reminds me of like that, like Calculon line in Futurama where he's like, a amateurs do two takes. I do one. And it's like, they went in there, they hit their marks right before yep. it got warm. And then they like bounced out and had to wait for it to get cold again. And they did it like in a very, very efficient manner. And it's wild to do that, not only with like seasoned and trained actors, but also like young actors as well. Like the fact that like Linda Blair is like killing it in this scene and like was able to do it under the like limitations of few takes. It's incredible. Yeah. And yeah. I, it's, it's, I mean, she was freezing and only had one take to get it right. Can you imagine just trying seeing... to hit your mark while you're just freezing? No, and she's 13. Yeah. And I remember seeing an interview where she was like, I can talk about this movie forever. And no, you'll st you still won't get how hard it was for me. The fact that she had to be in this cold and she actually like they for her eye con like her contact, she had to wear eye numbing cream or something crazy. And then, yeah, like you said, Cal, she had to then hit her mark. Like, it's insane. Well, it's you know, she, apparently she still hates the cold. <laughs> like apparently it was traumatic enough to where she still doesn't she just doesn't like the cold this human being made in your image and likeness strike terror lord into the beast now laying waste your let your mighty hand cast him out of your servant Reagan Therese McNeil since we're talking about like difficult conditions, we might as well spin back a little bit to talk about some of the stuff that Blatty did. Uh, not, I'm sorry, Freakin did on set. Like he would fire guns around set to get, and like the things that he did to get performances out of people. This is another thing that's very of that era, you know, because you hear all these stories about. I, I think it, uh, Jason Miller told one to where like. There's the scene where he's sitting there very, very focused on listening to this tape recorder and then the phone rings and, it, and he jumps and it scares him. The way that he got that shot is Friedkin fired a shotgun like right behind him. And like that, that was the noise that made him jump. And it's just Friedkin firing guns on set. And everybody, you know, there I saw another story where Von Sydow showed it. He like, yeah, he would, Max would show up on set today and he would talk to the, to the first AD or something. Like, where are the guns hidden today? And he's like, well, there's a 45 behind the camera and then the shotgun is over there behind that wall. And he's like, all right, thank you. And that was just like part of his process was yeah. like, when can I expect Friedkin to pull a gun on me today? Like, it was so bizarre. But then everybody would tell these stories and they would all end with like, but you know, I love him. Like what a, what a, <laughs> Billy's like, what a great a guy. Yeah. Billy's a great guy. And he was like, no, but he like open-handed slapped you in front of the crew <laughs> so that you were, your hand would be shaking in that scene. Like that would, come on, man. Like, <laughs> well, I remember I, I, I saw, J I think it was Jason Miller say something about the, along the lines of that gun shooting scene where he was like, you know, mm -hmm. I can act, right? Like I can just do the acting. And Ellen yeah. Burstyn said something similar with the, the scene that uh, broke her, what was it? Like broke her rib cage with the harness when she was like pulling it was, back. It was like her, her tailbone or something. Yeah. yeah. And they had to like not shoot for a few days. And I, I remember reading somewhere that that was, uh, the harness was, uh, already tight and she asked for it to be looser and Friedkin was like no well, yeah there's another story about Linda Blair not when she's like flopping back and forth on the bed when the psychologists first show up like that she was tied into a harness and that like got too loose and that like 
broke one of her vertebrae or something and she got scoliosis for for years or something. yeah <laughs> like, like no she has like the serious people were getting yeah. hurt and telling and and there's also these stories too about like and this is a, again it's from this era of filmmaking where like you know ellen burston said he's pulling the rope too hard and i'm gonna get hurt and then friedkin would say like okay okay i, I hear you and then she would turn around and she could even kind of tell that he was like given the the stunt guy like it was like go ahead pull it harder pull it harder this time and then they did and it it hurt her and she's like they use that shot in the movie like there's no compunction about like you know putting your your cast in danger and then whatever happens on camera like we're going to use it it's going to be in the film and it's like yep he's a maniac but i love him well, that's like, it's, you're no, you're so right click because they like still don't say anything bad about him in particular. They're like, yeah, oh, he, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. But this is one of those movies, I think, too, where knowing the behind the scenes really like kind of elevates the viewing experience because the fact that I watched this scene and know that Ellen Burson really just broke her, yeah, like broke her vertebrae or whatever, it's like, ah, oh, it makes it so much, it, it just hurts so much more. Yeah. Ugh. I don't know. What, what else we got? What, what else do we want to talk about? I mean, the scene we were just I talking about is just such a wild one. And I think when I think about this movie with the, the crucifix and like masturbating with it, like that's what this is like after the spider walk, this is kind of what I think about. And I, I think it's just because it's so jarring and the effect with the hand that we just saw. Um, but it's also like where it starts to get really, really uncomfortable with the whole like, F me, F me. Like, it's this weird, yeah. weird mix of religion, family, and sex. And I think that is what makes this movie so horrifying. It's all these societal things that we don't want to mix. And all of a sudden, we're mixing them very suddenly in a very scary way. And I think that's what really sticks with me when I think about The Exorcist. Well, in this scene in particular, too, is, is where this, you know, science is starting to fail. Yeah. Right. Like they haven't found anything like wrong with her and, and so far. But then the doctors being here and seeing this is when like modern science is failing. I mean, there's nothing that modern science can do to help this girl. And like that in and of itself is also scary for, you know, I mean, it's scary to this day. But I can imagine in the 70s it was worse somehow. Mm hmm. Yeah, it, it's funny, too, because like, I, I think later in the movie when Karis meets her for the first time, even he's like trying to be skeptical. And that's when she's full like possession has lesions on her face yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, but no, you're right. It's it's where it's like, all right, guys, like, let's give it up. Maybe let's let's bring in the big, big guns, some priests. <laughs> <laughs> Those priest big guns. Um, I mean, the other. So, I mean, there's the other thing that uh, I've already made one joke about it today, but the vomit. Man, that big vomit. <laughs> to start with, it was, uh, it's a cool effect. It's a cool makeup effect that they actually have it looking like it's spraying out of her mouth. Um, there's a, a cool little rig that gets sort of hidden under her cheeks that kind of hides the hose back there and it gets pumped out, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a sort of one of those things that it's a simple, kind of a simple deal that takes really good craftsmanship to, to do right. Um, but <laughs> the other, the other incredible thing about this scene is that he was not supposed to get hit in the face with this. Nah. And, you know, and you know, so that's another, that's another like real reaction of, did of, he, uh, 
Did you Go see? It, do you see in like the behind the scenes stuff? It's like they had like those like cardboard cutouts that are like the like police. Like the, it looked like yeah. those police, you know, like training what you shoot the guns at. at yeah, the it was range. like gun range targets. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's like the silhouette of the man, and like they had they're using it to like you know basically just like do like the artillery targeting of the of the goop. So it's so it like here's where Jason Miller is gonna stand. They yeah. have all of these targets and like the the pea soup hits in the chest, hits in the chest, hits in the chest, and then on the day, right in the face. Well, it also apparently had something to do with it being so cold is because they were, you know, they were doing the setup. And then, of course, they had to tweak the lighting or they had to do something. And so the guy was all ready to go with his like pea soup and oatmeal formula. Uh, and he was sitting there thinking, like, I think it's probably gotten a little too cold. Got jack uh, so it's going to be heavier when it yeah. comes out. So he aimed a little higher and he 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 gave it a little more ga- a little more gas uh, and it shot him straight in the face. Well, and apparently he was <laughs> real mad. Well, I mean, you think he's so like funny. shooting a gun in his ear. You know, he's getting like yeah. pea soup shot in his face. Like he's just having a rough day. But that's what I, I love about Jason Miller's. Uh, reaction in the scene because like you said he does look pissed like he kind of like wipes it off his face and then like yeah. angrily flicks his hand he's like god damn it Billy again you know I can <laughs> act right I'm an actor <laughs> <laughs> but I was just thinking about this scene and like if it gets if it just hits him in the in the chest and he's like uh like I don't care about that scene but him getting hit full in the face and it's in his mouth and like oh god it's so gross. And I think that's yeah. another thing, like when we're talking about like why this movie is so scary to me, I think a lot of it is just because it's so gross. Like not to get too gross, but like you gotta think about how that room smells or something. It's just like nasty. Well, it probably didn't smell that bad until they let it warm up. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they also, that's true, I mean, the cold they were, helps. They're also yeah. clearly like she puked a lot cause they're like, they, you know, they needed to protect the furniture. They, they, they wrap it all down. They like, <laughs> baby like baby like they baby protect it so it's like all wrapped in blankets and then it looks like newspaper like they do to have like the cover the finish and it's so she could do whatever she wants in there (laughs) easy cleanup but i do love this scene in general too because like that's where you get this little dynamic between karis and pazuzu and also where you see like pazuzu's weird sense of humor with the whole like your mother's not in right now but leave a message which i think they parodied in scary movie which i always think about um but like also i'm curious to get your guys's thought when he uh sprinkles the holy water on it on her but it's not actually holy water but she's freaking out anyway i always go back and forth about what that means i don't know if she was just trying to fake him out Pazuzu like what like what do you guys think about that yeah it feels like it's it's part of that cat and mouse kind of Mm -hmm. thing yeah you know like I I think Pazuzu is just you know I'm sure there's some type of some amount of like I'm gonna let him think he's winning kind of like I could I could see that happening in Pazuzu's sort of motives right yeah um whether or not it's I, I don't think there's any sort of tangible like ooh, maybe it wasn't maybe it was all a dream kind of impact on the story like i think it's probably just pazuzu being a jerk <laughs> yeah pazuzu's a brat honestly yeah yeah <laughs> he's he's a little, little demon um cal you mentioned something earlier uh I, I think at the top of the show about the um or maybe this was earlier today i can't remember anymore but the is to to get back into the idea that 
grips are the smartest people on the planet. Um, and how they didn't have a steady cam back in the day, but they still wanted a shot that tracked people upstairs, going upstairs. Right? Yeah, so that it's it's crazy to me that we think it's like and the steady cam is what? 10 years removed from this cuz like Kubrick would be using it a lot in the shining 7 7 7 years from then. Yeah, more or less, there. right? So, in order for um in order in order for Friedkin to get continuous shots from the ground floor up the stairs to the second floor, they had to build a rig. And it's functionally a swing that they put the cameraman in. And then, like, there's grips behind the scenes, like, pulling them up. And then there's grips. And then there's, like, some camera people behind behind the swing, you know, directing it up the stairs. So it's, like, it's free-floating, and that's how it moves around. And it's just this, like, whole wire contraption that they had above the set in order to do these complex tracking shots up the stairs. And it's, it's wild to think about how bespoke of a solution needed to be figured out in order to do something as simple as having a continuous shot up a flight of stairs. And then, I feel like we run into to those two different kind of solutions. You talk about a bespoke solution for this. Like this is, we have one shot that we need to get in the can here. And so we're gonna do this elaborate pulley system to, to make it happen. The other side of that coin is like somebody invents the Dijkstra flex, right? Yeah. Like, or somebody invents a, a computer that can do it or, or you know, something like that. <laughs> I feel like, it's like, here's a thing that we can use on every movie from now on. Yeah. Um, or like, a bunch of really smart guys that can build stuff. Yeah, you got like, two days. Oh, no, to I can get you up. To, I can get yeah. you up the stairs smooth. Hang yeah, on. You just give me a half day. I'll get you up there. Because yeah. they did the same yeah. thing with the uh, the shot of the psychiatrist who gets his balls grabbed the, and yeah, and, which is a great shot. All of those like it's a great shot. Yeah, where the camera doesn't, where the camera stays on them, and it's the background and like the peripheral stuff that moves. Awesome. Yeah, it's one of those like requiem for a dream shots. Except it was the first version of that. Yeah. And what it was, was like they built basically just a stand for the guy. It's all just plywood. Like yeah. it's all two by fours and plywood. And they, they, he literally had to climb up and stand in this thing that the camera was attached to. And just three or four guys just kind of like lowered him to the ground. And he was just like, uh, like, um, but it's just, it, you know, you give the guys a problem and then you go away and tomorrow they've got it figured out. Like it's, it's such a, it's such a fun I've, filmmaking gets gets to be really like heady and you know let's let's talk about film and what it means and all this stuff but so much of filmmaking for me which that part's great I love doing that but I love revisiting these old movies did you see like how they did stuff it's a puzzle you know like I mean it, it's just how they addressed problems and there's no there's it was no, such so practical and so there was no sort of like headiness about it it's like yeah. I got to get from A to B and logistically how are we going to do it yeah and it's incredible i love that even with the like when they were suspending her right like they were talking about how they had to paint paint the wires like yeah. different shades because if you painted it all white it would stand out on a black background if you painted it all dark it would stand out on a light background but if you mix the shades like a polka dot i think they said it'll blend better because the eye can't distinguish it it's well that is shit like that is subtly the most, like, I wouldn't say it's the most impressive part, but whenever I think about it, I'm like, who thinks about that? Like, who is smart enough to actually come up with that? Because, like, when you watch it, you genuinely don't understand how it was made without 
special effects. But like, no, it was just basic like eye trickery. It's incredible. Well, and also like, this is a small movie. You know, like it's it's a very contained movie and it's not it's not one that you think of when you you know, it's not one that immediately springs to mind when you think of like really ingenious practical effects. Um, you know, like you think about the thing and how, uh, you know, people worked for two years to get the little head thing to, to do just right. And you, you think of all of those things that are like very practical effects, but like just a, a wardrobe moving from one side of the room to the other and doors slamming by themselves and like every little thing that they did in this movie um adds up to a ton of work like there is a ton of pra of effects and really really good effects that hold up to the point where we don't even think that they're in there you know like it's it's not an effects heavy uh movie there's some good makeup that jumps out obviously on linda blair i i assumed max von Sydow was 75 years old since 1963 you know like I, <laughs> because of this movie um, but, uh, but yeah, all of the practical effects that are in there and just completely invisible are, are so cool. Well, and the other thing about that but too, it is it, it, it kind of goes to what you were, we were talking about, about Fried, Friedkin just putting his actors through it because it's one of those things where, you know, that when you're in that final exorcism scene, you know, that Max von Sydow and J Jason Miller are actually seeing that like in front of them. It, it certainly adds to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as much as you hear about people complaining about being in front of a green screen and acting with a tennis ball, right. it's just like, nope, I got that pea soup shit in my mouth. Um, and, and I was pissed about it. And a gun, <laughs> and a gun shot in my ear. And a, yeah, and, and yeah, because I'm of two minds of it. It's like, that damn well better, if you hurt me because of this, that better be in the movie. Yep. Um, but then also, I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, also, it's it exactly, is... It which, is that's... The fact that Ellen Burstyn was like, it's a little tight. And he was like, make it tighter. <laughs> make it tighter. I also want to talk about, I mean, we got to talk about the head turn also, yes. which, you know, again, I think, I think now, you know, it's easy to think it's like, yeah, well, they made they made a dummy and they put little robot parts so it, you know they can move the eyes and everything. And I, I apparently I listened to one guy that that said um, that they put the dummy in a cab and had it ride around Manhattan at one point just for fun, um, which I I think is is wonderful. Um, but then um, so it's it's they were about to shoot it. And again, because of the cold, this is the bumping the lamp thing, the thing that continues to make the rest of their job harder. Like they realized that there was no breath coming out of the dummy. And so then they were just like, oh, well, we got to fix that. And then so they give it to, to the special effects guy and he figures out how to get breath to come out of the dummy also. And then now the dummy can turn its head and move its eyes and it's breathing. And it's like, oh, God, that's terrifying. Um, and it looks... Amazing. So I think it still looks good. Like it's a little bit wooden and you can see, you know, that it's not right, quite right. But I'll take that over a CGI version of that any day. But that for, for the, I can't quite put my finger on it, but that's why it's so scary. The fact that it doesn't look yeah. quite right. It shouldn't look right. It's a little girl. Whose it's, head it's not turning supposed all the way to look around. natural. Yeah, no, exactly. it's supposed to look really weird and jarring. Yeah. Oh, it's so you. good. No. 
it, yeah. that it, there's a reason why that shot holds up too, right? It's just so jarring and everything looks so great. And it's just like done in the two shot, right? So it's like the close up yeah. on her, then it cuts as it's like turning around and you get it in the wide, then it cuts to the reaction and then back to her. So it's, it's just on to your point. Like we talked a lot about it in T2 where they hold the shot just long enough. So you can't show the scene. So you don't see the seams. And this is like the peak of them really starting to like, find that groove and do it really really well yeah that's i mean the way that they escalate the use of these things too is yeah. is pretty is pretty good but like and again this is another scene that ends on like a pretty pretty distinct cut and then we're out and he's we're out to the peaceful street you know that's like that's the way that the movie's cut right there and and just having to sit there and live with what you just saw for mm -hmm. for a beat mm -hmm. is is really ingenious editing um, but the other thing about that scene, the one that I want to talk about too, is there's another guy involved in this, uh, Gonzalo Gavira, the sound designer, um, who was Jodorowsky's guy. Like he was, he was working on El Topo when Friedkin saw the work and was like, I want him. Um, so he did El Topo, he did Holy Mountain. And so that's why some of these sound, the sound design in this movie is just, is downright trippy. Uh, and apparently the sound of the head twisting was the guy <laughs> apparently this Gavira was just in the uh just had in front of a mic with no shoes on and his pant legs rolled up and he was just grabbing stuff and making sound he grabbed there's he found somebody's wallet it was just some dudes it was a leather wallet that somebody had in the room and he just like twisted it in front of the mic and that's the sound of the neck spinning which is awesome God, that's cool. so, and I will say one thing that kind of surprised me when I was like kind of just looking at interviews and stuff. Um, Friedkin says apparently the best way to experience the sound. He actually, he says the best way to experience the extras in general is the Blu-ray. And he was saying that he was watching the Blu-ray and like hearing sounds that like he didn't even know was in there. So now I kind of have to go back to the Blu-ray. Yeah, I wonder if they remixed it without him and added stuff in. That's or what I was if thinking he too. Never heard it before. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the other thing that's so crazy uh, anyway. about these effects is that they all have like this all happens in one room and i think that's kind of why you don't think about it like you were saying clint you don't think about it as one of the most ingenious like movies for practical effects because it's so contained but like 99 percent of what we've talked about happens in that one room it's crazy yeah yeah it's a small movie it's a small movie is there anything anything else we missed that we need to, to talk about before we move out of brilliant moments. I mean, the, I, I feel like do we want to do we want to talk about the ending and how the ending is subtly different? Because like that, I think that's like of all the cardinal sins of of all like all the mortal yeah. sins of the uh, of the director's cut. I think it's the ending that is the one that is most profoundly changed, and I yeah. think it has a more than subtle effect on how the movie is should be perceived by audiences so so the theatrical cut ends with uh father dyer looking down the stairs this is this is karis's friend father dyer played by an actual priest yeah um looking down the steps and then he just kind of turns and walks away and that's that's the end of the movie then the director's cut has this whole other scene with yeah. father dyer and the cop kinderman it's not only that it's 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 a hold on it's in the in the in the theatrical cut there's a, there's a scene at the end where the priest gives where the priest gives her the like Karis's medallion 
or not Karis's medallion, but like that, like the medallion, and she like accepts it and like goes on with her life. Whereas in the mo- in the director's cut, she gives it back. And there's a way there's a way to read that where she's accepting faith because like this whole movie is kind of about this like secular woman just refusing to come to terms with the fact that her child is possessed by a higher power that it, that can't be explained by science. It, ha- it can only be explained through faith. And by accepting, accepting the medallion at the end, she understands that faith has to be a part of her life moving forward. So it, yeah. it's supposed to symbolize like the internal change and the importance of the newfound importance of faith in her life versus in the other one. It's just like, okay, yeah, no, you keep this for your friend. We're, no, we're I'm, I'm, I'm leaving Washington DC. I'm done here. You know, yeah. I have, I've learned nothing, but I'm very grateful yeah. that my, my child is not. <laughs> I, I'm just glad to be done with this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's like, I mean, that's cause like, I like that. Cause it's, it's kind of, it kind of leverages that same moment, just like in Die Hard, where like it came to me later in life and Die Hard that Holly's watch is so meaningful to the, to the theme of, of Die Hard and like, you know, the yuppie culture and the, like the rampant capitalism of like the Reagan eighties and stuff like that. And I never put two and two together back in like when I was a child and then I'm just like, Oh, the watch. Yeah. How, how profoundly relevant. And then to see a symbol, similar totem emblematic, like thing in the exorcist also carry that kind of meaning. It's like, yeah, no, this definitely changes the vibe and take away the movie. There's there's another great discussion between Blatty and Friedkin about like Blatty wanted there to be some hope at the end. He wanted yep. he didn't want it to be a completely downer of an ending. Like he wanted it to be. How did he put it? He's like God's God's in heaven and everything's right with the world. You know, by the time that they end, and that's that's part of what that conversation between Dyer and Kinderman, the, the detective, was about. It's like here's here's that that sacrifice that Karis made. You know, isn't lost to time like there's yeah. still like here's his impact living living you know beyond him in the relationship between this other priest and, and the cop and and you know the whole thing about you like movies i, I love going to see the pictures and all, all of that stuff like everything is just there's a reset and that you know we're still in a good place like the earth is not we're not totally f-ed here guys i know we just put you <laughs> through the ringer watching this movie but everything's gonna be okay i promise like that that is Blatty's ending. Like that's the one that he wanted to, yeah, to yeah. do. And Freakin again, like Freakin wanted people to come come by it them, you know, themselves. Like I don't want to tell people how to feel about this. People are going to feel how they want to feel about it, and that's great. That's part of the that's part of the deal. To your point, Clint, about what he he was saying about how he Blatty saw it as kind of like Karis living on. I found was a real because that's not what I got from it. But hearing him say that, I was like kind of like, oh, well, that's kind of nice i guess um because obviously like karis is such a tragic character he ends up giving this his life for this little girl that he doesn't know and uh but i still think it would have been really freaking weird to leave it in like i get it but yeah take it up well there's there's also the the idea of like i've gotten everything that i think i need out of mm-hmm. the exorcist at that point it feels like it it feels like sort of feet dragging on your way out the door like i i didn't necessarily need that like the detective, I, I feel like, was like he was just kind of incidental to to the plot for the for the most part. Although the scene where he asks for uh, 
uh, Ellen Burstyn's autograph is hilarious to me. Yeah. The fact that he's a, a film fan and knows her work and is like, it's for my daughter. And what's her name? It's like, uh, <laughs> it's for me. <laughs> that, was, that was such a, a funny little thing, especially to put her through that, like with everything that we know is going on upstairs, like to put her through that awkwardness is, is such a, such an uncomfortable scene. But, but yeah, I, I did, I certainly didn't need that at the end. I like, I see the idea of it being a kind of happier ending and, and, you know, leave the theater with a little hope, but I don't think that's the point of this movie. No, it also doesn't erase what we just went through for two hours. <laughs> like, sure, we're still sure. pretty traumatized from it. Uh, yeah. I actually, I, I, I do really actually am charmed by Kinderman. I kind of think he's like an underrated player in the movie, but it's not because of the plot. I just think, I, I think I'm just weirdly endeared by the fact that he's there and he has this kind yeah. of very distinct personality and he likes to watch movies and critique them. And like, I don't know why you're here, but I'm not mad about it. Yeah. I mean, if he's gone from the movie completely, you can lift him straight out. Like you, you can, you can, you know, I, I like there's, there's an, uh, an added layer of stress for the sort of the, I guess it would be weird if the cops never asked about the dead body, <laughs> you know? Um, but like, ultimately like that's kind of a, you could skate past that on like movie logic. You don't necessarily need, you, know, you could narratively, you could lift him straight out. I am to your, I am glad that he's there. Um, I don't think that him being integral to the ending changes the movie to, to me. I don't think I need him there. Um, but the fact that he's there, you know, during the exorcism and is running into the room at that, in that last scene and to, to sort of witness that, like, I think that does add some more of the sort of the establishment, be it science or be it, uh, you know, the law enforcement or whoever has no, uh, no idea how to handle this like mm -hmm. showing that it is completely out of their hands it is like that's what he's for more than anything i think but um okay well i, I tell you what we're running out of time so let's move on to movie list is there any any other brilliant moments that you guys want to flag before we before we hustle on uh i think yeah. karis's dream is interesting i don't, I don't want to spend too much time yeah. on it but it's a it's something that i feel like i always forget about but when i rewatch it i'm like oh that's creepy it's it is some real quality like late 60 early 70s montage yeah like there was there's some good dream sequence montages and for some reason uh, any any back in those days movie that's just like a quick flash of something scary because you just briefly get like pazuzu's face and like oh it's just that's another thing that's in the director's cut there's mm -hmm. you know the pazuzu's face in the background of, of a couple of those scenes got tacked on in, in the director's cut which is another reason it's like i feel you know, I think I think I think Friedkin was kind of right in that the you don't want to explain too much in this movie. Like you don't want to do, you don't want to serve everything up on a platter. You know, mm -hmm. you want to audience needs to do a little bit of work. But um, anyway, I'm team theatrical, except for the Spider Walk. I I'm oh god I, I, okay so I want the Spider Walk, the conversation between Marin and and. <laughs> And Karis. Uh -huh. And I actually, I like the little flashes of Pazuzu just because they scare me. Um, okay. That is what I will take from the extended cut. We can't. Okay. We can, we'll, in, in, our, in our a la carte exorcist. Yes. In uh, my Frankenstein exorcist, cut. yeah. But assuming, yeah. You didn't, assuming you didn't have a Frankenstein exorcist, if you only had to choose one cut. Because, I mean, we can't, we can't pick the scenes we want. Like, each have their pros and cons. And when push comes down to shove, you go there, pick A or B. What one is it? 
I, I, I gotta go extended just because of spider walk. I, I feel like just you can't of the have- It's yeah, that important? Really, it's exactly. that important. Like that is like the scariest scene. I, I have to go extended just for the spider walk. If that, if that, those are my options. If I can't a la carte it. But it profoundly changes the meaning, like the takeaways of the film. Spider walk, baby. And spider, spider walk, walk all the way. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm theatrical. <laughs> I love the spider walk. I think it's a really cool shot. And I'm and like, you know, I appreciate that he George Lucas something in the good way into his film like 30 years later. But I don't think The Exorcist was a classic before that shot was ever in the film. And I don't yeah. think we should change. I don't think changing like like significant thematic and narrative narrative elements is worth adding the one cool shot in the movie that had plenty of cool shots beforehand. It's it's such a strange conversation to me though because I the director's cut was the one I saw first. And so thinking about that like I had to hunt down the theatrical cut to to see it. Um and and so like thinking about the changes it sort of goes in reverse for for me like and particularly because like i mean as i said earlier like i think that that the director's cut was more of a writer's cut than any i think that the theatrical version is the director's cut in this in this instance but um but i do think that i do uh i do think it, I'm, I'm team theatrical i just keep going back to that story that friedkin told about the painter getting arrested in the louvre for working on his own painting it's just like cut it out it's already in the loop yeah. like this is this is good you, you had it you got a winner so uh cut it out i stop love the that. spider walk stop that it. much all right okay fair enough. but totally I fair i don't think so the ending is very weird the alternate the extended ending i like i said earlier i don't think it erases like the rest of the movie i don't think it completely goes back on everything they were saying i think it's weird but doesn't having the the extra yeah. conversation with yeah, with yeah. Dyer and Kinderman. Mm-hmm. I don't think it ruins the movie. I think, I think it's odd. It doesn't. I don't know that it ruins the movie. It does change some things. I think pacing wise, it it also like I'm I need to be out of this movie by then. I don't need a whole other conversation just to get a cheeky oh. like I've already seen it. Like to be fair, I don't think that the director's cut ruins the movie in any capacity. I just think yeah. that the theatrical cut is tight tighter, and I think it has a sharper ending. So I do think it's superior. I don't think that that the director's cup ruins it by any means. I agree I'll that it's way now. tighter. Yeah. yeah. Goodbye, father. Goodbye. I'll call you. All right, movie lists. Um, it, there we have covered The Exorcist a bit. Fair, a fair bit over the years. Uh, there's a what's the difference that's up right now. That um, just went live. That's a that's a brand new one. Um, best movie monsters. Pazuzu was on best movie monsters because we broke it down based on the type of fear that the monsters instill, and those were our different ten categories. And this one was the fear of of being possessed. Frankly, fear of, of something else taking over us you know it's sort of that was in the category with like zombies and stuff like that too sort of becoming not yourself um then uh scariest movie moments we talked about the spider walk actually that's how scary it is we went with uh a director's cut scene for uh scariest movie moments um and then it also got a shout out in our horror tropes movie list because you can only do so many top 10 horror movies. We had to start doing horror tropes and uh, <laughs> scary moments. And 
Do you remember um, the, what trope it was particularly? I'm curious. Uh, well, because we didn't really... It, it was the... Um, shoot, what was it? Because we didn't really have picks for that. Our picks were oh, okay. like broader tropes and we used a lot of different examples for, for this. So I think it was... Um, I think it was in the supernatural. Or it was possession. I, th I think it was, mm -hmm. it was probably something along those lines. Um, but uh, or just super religion, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Time to revisit that list. Apparently. <laughs> um, is there anything else that uh, that this belongs on? I feel like Top you ten vomits. Child chi child performances. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I mean, right up there with with fellow nominee Tatum O'Neill. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't know she lost to Tatum O'Neill. That's a wild year. It's yeah, incredible that, that one child <laughs> yeah. nominee lost to another. Yeah. Um, um we gotta I, I gotta revisit horror movies in general. Because this... we did we did a top five horror movies and we did it because horror movies are like the Let me, Mount Rushmore is pretty well ensconced yeah. in, in horror, more so than I think uh, most other genres. And oh. so we did like replacements for some of those movies. And The Exorcist kind of didn't make that weird cut. But Let me ask you. Um, let me ask you this. Is this your favorite Friedkin movie? It's mine. It's, it's, def I, I would it's definitely like, not mine. But I know. You, well, you like a crime movie. So I imagine oh, yours yeah. is The French Connection. I think this is like four for me. Really? Yeah, because I mean, like, I mean, to I, live in to live and die in LA is is awesome. Yeah, else. yeah. I, that and that movie's pretty great. So um, is Cruising. So is Sorcerer. Cru yeah. So is Sorcerer, and like, so is The French Connection. Like, all these movies are like awesome. Well, I'm then, curious now, Cal. I, do you have a Friedkin on your list that isn't The Exorcist? Uh, yeah, I have. I mean, I spoilers, French, I guess, but I have, I have French. Yeah, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Seems like you're trying to pull back some curtains here, Alex. <laughs> I like to crack the code. <laughs> yeah, it would be higher than fourth for me. I, I really enjoy this movie, but I, I mean, the, the French Connection and Sorcerer is one of those. I think I, I set it up top. Sorcerer is one of those movies that really snuck up on me when I when I finally got around to seeing it because I had seen Wages of Fear and I knew it was a remake and I just never I had never gotten around to it until fairly recently. Um, and it, that was one where I was like, "Oh, this is good." <laughs> like, I haven't seen was, Sorcerer. Sorcerer. I might have to great. watch it tonight. Yeah. It's Roy, Roy Scheider, it. and it's yeah, it's it's very it's very good. Um, so then, uh, but yeah, it's up there for me. I mean, in terms of like top ten freaking movies, I guess is, if that's what you were getting at, uh, for sure. But I would put, I mean, Sorcerer is is good, and and Cruising is good. I would put those below The Exorcist, though. French Connection to Live and Die in L.A. and 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 Exorcist are all kind of like one one A and one B, you know. Yeah, I do really enjoy the French Connection, but it's yeah, yeah. Exorcist number one for me, easy. There you go. All right, let's torf. What are let's some torf. Thing, things you didn't know? We've not we've not done a things you didn't know about the Exorcist, so. You uh, know, this might be tricky because I feel like we all know a lot about it, but. Well, it seems like we all spent today, yesterday, and today watching the same behind-the-scenes <laughs> videos. So uh, we we can probably, I, I bet we're going to cruise through these and, and get a bunch of them right. No, there were a lot of times where, like, you were saying something, Clint, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I watched that interview too." Ooh, yeah, I didn't delete that. <laughs> we, yep. we looked at the same scenes. Yep. <laughs> so, same notes. Um, okay, so uh, 
I'll try to trick you guys anyway. Um, so this this dwarf has some buildup, so I will read you the background and then ten, tell you when it's true or false time. This already um, sounds like it's a false. <laughs> <laughs> okay, several scenes of The Exorcist were filmed on the Georgetown campus. Most famously, a scene in which the character Father Damien Karras falls down a flight of stairs was shot there. Uh, this next part, true or false? This staircase was nicknamed the Exorcist Steps by the horror community, but before the Exorcist Association, these stairs were called the Hitchcock Steps after their use in an earlier Hitchcock film. True or false? So they were renamed the Exorcist Steps from the Hitchcock Steps? Yeah. And they were they used they to were be called the Hitchcock Steps and then the after Hitchcock the Exorcist. Steps. Okay. Yeah, they were called the Hitchcock Steps because uh, Hitchcock used them. False. I'm going to go true, but I don't know. You know what? I am going to go false. I don't, I don't think Hitchcock liked to shoot on location a lot. Uh, you know what? It's false. It's false. Yep. Um, there were more than 39 of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they, they were called the Hitchcock steps, but not because Hitchcock shot on them just because they were really spooky. Um, yeah. That was Got the false it. part. <laughs> so this is one of, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't even consider this being one of, of uh, you and Tayo's half-truths. Really, yeah. really tricky half-truth. Uh, no, but he yeah, did yeah. have something that, Tayo did find something that I didn't know. Um, Joel Schumacher was fil- filming St. Elmo's Fire at Georgetown and attempted to get permission from the Jesuit priest facility at that school to film there, but he was rejected. He reminded the father that the exorcist had shot on the Georgetown campus, and in that movie, a 13-year-old girl pees on a rug and masturbates with the cross. Uh, the father told him, yes, but in that movie, the devil didn't win, which I don't know. That was a fun little tidbit. Depends on which version of the movie you watch, right? Yeah. I guess I guess he was talking about, uh, well, St. Elmo's Fire was before the, the uh, director's cut came out, so. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that his take was like, yeah, the God won. That's yeah. why you can shoot here. <laughs> That's why it's okay. Yeah. Well, there was there was some energy around the movie that was like because I also read that the MPA didn't because this was in the, in the years the early years of the MPA the code was officially gone what ten years prior to this something like that, um, and the X rating was getting tossed around a, a little bit and there was concern there's always concern about getting an X rating but this there wasn't really an issue with this movie because the the MPA decided it was it was important enough to overlook the gory stuff like that and it, again it was just like it's a grounded portrayal of good versus evil i guess so you know we're not going to rate this X but also wait wasn't like all wasn't all that self-censorship stuff like really to like appease catholics anyway so like I think, yeah, like, <laughs> probably. So, like, this is a story where God exists and defeats the devil. Yeah, no, the, we're the, good. Yeah, the, the church PG. Is, yeah, the church is willing to overlook any any possessed right. child masturbation because you know. <laughs> Well, first of all, uh, Clint, you just totally blew a torf. That was next. <laughs> Not oh, next, but, but I do. I I do think it's funny that the MPAA is so skittish about like sexual content that's like, well, yeah, you can do whatever you want gore wise, but don't show a boob or anything like that's when you get rated X. Okay. True or false. The official body count is five. Oh, is this how many people died in, yes, the, death count. in the movie? Yeah. Uh, um, go with true. 
Hmm. We'll go with false. What do you What do you think it is? If it's, or you just think it's false? Isn't it just three? No. No. Name your three. I mean, there's the director. Yeah. And then both priests. And then there's the mom. That's four. She's not murdered. I mean, she's not murdered, but she dies. She's in hell. Wait, what? Karis's mother. Oh, Karis's mom. She died. I'm sorry. So I that, thought you were talking that... about. I was like, pretty sure Ellen Burson. Is, no. Did I? Which director's cut did you watch? <laughs> um, and then there was the the guy that jumped out the window. Yeah, that was the director. That was. That was the director. Yeah. Oh shit! All right. Well, I anyway. There was at least four. So at least four. Okay, at least four. I'm so I'm st- still going false. Okay, Cal, you're true. Clint, you're false. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is false. And yeah, it's actually four. And we just listed them. <laughs> four. <laughs> there is no more than the four that we listed, basically. This doesn't include all of the mysterious deaths that were that occurred during the uh, production. That people thought the the set was actually cursed. <laughs> yeah. Is that, did I just blow another Torf? That was my next Torf. Oh, no. Okay, well, here. I'm like, do you have um, the same Doc, Clint? (laughs) No, no, I'm not. Um, (laughs) But that was was an easy one, yes. The true or fault was was that, yes, many people thought it was cursed. And by the end of the film's production, nine people associated with its making had passed away. Yikes. Yeah. And also, uh, apparently, Friedkin asked, so there's the, there are two actual priests in the movie. Um, there's the priest that Karis meets at the bar. Um, he was like the technical advisor. I think he was the, he was the guy that actually gave Blatty all the homework when he was first writing the book. Um, but, uh, Friedkin called him to see if he could come exercise the set. And the priest was like, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not messing with that. There was a great, in one of the behind the scenes, again, this is probably, we watched the same behind the scenes thing. There was this great montage of like, Everybody from, you know, the the art director guy to Max von Sydow to Ellen Burstyn, they were all giving, like, you could see they all kind of came down differently on it. Because Ellen Burstyn was like, it was probably cursed. Lots of people died. And nobody knows how. And then Sydow was like, we were making the movie for a year. So, yeah, shit happened. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the, good point, though. The, it was like the, already the range of, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the range of, like, the cynic to the full believer that, that we see in the movie, like, also happened on set, too which was I thought was really interesting but and I, I think I mentioned this to you before we started shooting Clint where like that like when I was like a kid reading weird stuff on the internet this is what like really yeah. got me into the exorcist <laughs> I was like ooh, like it's, it's part of like yeah. the legend that makes the exorcist what it is aside from the movie right. it's just, like the lore behind right. it um well I, I do have one more, have one more since I since I blew two of your twerps <laughs> yeah yeah uh, <laughs> you gotta uh, fill one here's, in now <laughs> here's here's one more before we move on um William Peter Blatty um at one point in the 60s masqueraded as an arab prince true or false true i feel like that it's too specific to be true. false it has to be true it has to be true it is actually true cuz he wa- <laughs> he he that that was like the thing, premise of like the uh he was on that tv show that he was they, on yeah he was, was on you bet your Ka- life with Groucho yeah, marx yeah but he would he, so he had this character that he was like an Arab prince character that was because he was a comedy writer 
exclusively before this one thing we haven't mentioned is like he was exclusively a comedy writer and then that work dried up so he's like i guess i'll write something scary um but he wrote a book called uh which way to mecca jack (laughs) it was (laughs) this is apparently some sort of comedy about an arab prince and he had this character that he would wander around hollywood in the 60s pretending to be an arab prince to the point where he actually wound up on you bet your life and won like 10 grand uh, from Groucho Marx in in the sixties. There's you can find it on YouTube. It's it's hilarious because like the, the part of the life. premise is the premise is Groucho Marx has to guess which one of the people is is like faking it and is and is not who they say they are or whatever. And he sees right through him or whatever. And he's like, oh, my name's Bill Blatty and uh, I'm a writer. <laughs> it was bizarre. <laughs> I do like there's um, a in one of the interviews I was watching like uh, Vladdy does make some kind of like joke about like well this movie really killed my comedy career and I, yeah. <laughs> that just like just murdered me for some reason. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah uh, that. Who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God Who's your MVP for the movie? I was going back and forth between Vladdy and Friedkin and I was like, it's going to be a game day decision. I'm, I'm going to go Friedkin. Yeah. Who are you going You're with? going Friedkin, but you like Vladdy's cut better. Well, just just some of it. <laughs> just some of it, right. I, the a la carte version. Right. Uh, Cal? Dude, Jason Miller, all the way. Scran, represent. Scran, Scran's Dude, favorite son. You don't understand. I spent like 20 years of my life living in that town. And at, like every single person, it's like, oh, you watch, do you watch The Exorcist? You know, you know, the priest is from Scran? Like, I do. Yeah. The, like you guys have to have one of those like hometown heroes that everybody knows who they are. And I mean. Mine was Lyle Lovett. Yeah. So. Muddy Waters for me. Oh, Hell cool. Yeah. yeah so, I know. That's a cool one, right? Yeah. That's yeah. a cool one. So as far as I'm concerned, the person that won this movie is Jason Miller. Because no one in Scranton goes around just being like, yo, Linda Blair. She's awesome in The Exorcist. Everyone's just like, you know the priest? Right. They don't even, That's fair. Some people don't even remember his name. Like either Karis or Jason Miller. It's just like, you know the priest? He's from you know the priest from The Exorcist? Yeah, he's from I, uh, this one was a hard one because I feel like there's a lot of people doing really good work that contributed to why this movie is is so memorable. But I just for fun, I'm going to give it to uh, Marcel Vercotor, the uh, special effects lead on the movie. All the furniture moving, all the beds floating. Like we talked about it earlier, it was all done so well and, and it holds up and lent to the realism of the movie in, in a way that I think was really key. So I'm giving it to Marcel Vercator. Okay, also, his name, very fun to say. <laughs> I also, so I think my, my number three was probably going to be Linda Blair, too. Because, my God, that poor girl. Yeah. I mean, every, yeah, everybody went through it and, yeah. like, did some good work. And, I mean, even Dick Smith having to, like, go reinvent the look of Linda Blair at the last minute. Like, everybody's doing, this was a hard movie on a lot of people for a lot of reasons and everybody came up big i think um so it's tough but we are uh running along once again so uh to the point where like we should probably just go ahead and add some time to to our to our schedule for these from now on but cal we got time for one more segment before we get to the ranking who does nicholas cage play 
in The Exorcist. I do, unlike some of the films we have watched in the last couple episodes, I do think there is room for Nicolas Cage in this movie. I think, I, I, I mean, he's, he's very clearly a priest. And the question is, do you go, do you go Max von Sydow or do you go Jason Miller? I'm Father Marin all the way. Yeah. I was going to go Kinderman. That's, Kinderman? No, that's yeah. no fun. Nah. <clears throat> there's not enough, there's not enough to do. I, I mean, the, the only choice is Marin, right? Because like, imagine Nicolas Cage, like, and, and the same deal as, as, as Max von Sydow, uh, like age him up. You know, he's a young man in an older man's makeup and he's quiet and he's not well and he's he's sort of broken by his experience. And then to see him explode and come to life during the exorcism would be so much fun. Yeah. Like I think he would he could do he could do Father Marin real justice by like by that difference. Yeah, I agree. Also it's better, but I'm not mad about it. Also, I mean, nothing, you know, you can't beat Cedow, but you can no. maybe you can equal him. Yeah, but also like I think I think he could have done some more interesting stuff in like the early Iraq, in like the early Iraq moments because like Nicolas Cage could just be silent on film and just be like, what, what the fuck is this guy doing? You know, just like just sweeping off some like rocks. You know, just doing like doing his Jurassic Park thing, just being like, you know, I think he I think he could overact that in a way where. It seems like it would take up less time. He's he's overacting, digging stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe like someone. I, think, I mean, listen, that's an easy one to agree on. I think because I, yeah. I I don't think uh, I don't I don't want to take anything away from Jason Miller. Nope. Uh, no, at least Scranton's, not in front of Calibro. Scranton's favorite um, son. You can't. You can just, yeah. You can't do it. <laughs> All right, settled. That was easy. Done. Yeah. Um. So, I had this on my list. I let's get into where it ranks. And what Dan's algorithm did here, I I had it at number thirty six on my Ooh. list. We're, because we're, I really like this movie. I'm with you, and we're actually we're pretty close. Uh, it's on my list, and it's at forty three. So forty three and well, there you go, not too far. Neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm told Dan did not have it on his list. Cal, did you have it on? You probably didn't have it on yours. Dude, I'm oh man. It's, it's your fourth favorite freaking movie. So yeah. how? Yeah. Um, so it's Gran- I it's had it's favorite freaking movie. <laughs> I had it at, uh, at 36. Alex had it. At, it was a 43. Mm-hmm. And then it was missing from the other two. Where, where algorithmically does that end up? I think so, around Kyle the 50 mark. The, hol- the Halloween, the trick or treat. Do we still need to eat up time? You guys can watch me eat airheads over here. While no, I, we <laughs> don't need to do that. Just we were time. doing that all sound check. We don't. We're we're good. Okay. So this is it. It is. If you guys had a guess, if you had a guess where where it was gonna be, what do you think? Thirty six of forty three and uh, and two no shows. It's gonna be right in the same neighborhood. High high forties, low fifties. Yeah. High high forties, low fifties. I'll say fifty. Yeah. I'll, if I had to guess a number, I'll just say fifty. And right, I'll go. Well, I'll go uh, one. For uh, Price is Right rules. Yeah, Price is Right rules. Clint, you take it. It is 42. 42. Okay. Not bad. 42. Top half. Okay, so yeah, that that feels like... See, that feels like an algorithm that makes sense. It's the meaning. To me. It's the meaning of it life It doesn't always. Everything. It's the meaning of life and everything. Exactly. <laughs> 42. <laughs> um, okay. 
Well, do you, I mean, did your life uh, and the way that you view the exorcist change as a result of this conversation? Anybody? I still love it. No. Cal, still like your fourth favorite exorcist, uh, uh, Friedkin movie? Yeah, it's still like my fourth favorite Friedkin movie. It's, it's still my second favorite, you know, like possession, devil, demon movie kind of thing, you know. And, okay. But it is, it is my favorite Scranton adjacent movie. Sure. We can all well, agree I, on I'm that, just, I think. I'm, I'm just, uh, I apologize to um, both Friedkin and Blatty that we didn't get you away from Team Omen. Um, For the record, but, I also really like the Omen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, I mean, listen, it's very much the Pepsi to the to the Exorcist's Coke, and like this the, is like one, this is like the one deep of the deep impacts to to the Exorcist's yeah. Armageddon. Yeah, this is like one of the few times that I'm just like, I really like th- th- this Pepsi is way yeah. better to me than the Coke. But all right, well, I uh, I need now uh, I need a Coke now. So that's gonna do it for us this week. Thanks again for being here, Alex Cal. Thanks to everybody for for listening and watching us talk about a very scary movie. Um, thanks once again to our Torf specialist producer Tayo Yakin, technical producer and Spider Walker Marian Franzen, Jamie Parslow who keeps it below freezing in here, and Dan who I guarantee you would not help any of us if we were possessed by a demon. So once again, no thanks will be given to Dan. Um, And if you want to hear us without watching our faces talk, uh, and if you want the whole audio only thing, we are in all the usual podcast places, so you can track us down on the platform of your choosing and come back next week. We'll be sticking with the uh, theme of religious artifacts being found in the desert because we're watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. That'll be next week. So... Until then, stay safe, be good, everybody. We'll see you next time. Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of Go Kid Go and a mom to two kids. Join my family on the story train with Calm Conductor Birdie each night as we travel through the magic rainbow tunnel to everywhere and anywhere to find the best bedtime stories. Search for Story Train on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.